LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guests today are Pete Wilkie and Grov Molofsky, who join us to discuss their recent book, The Difference We Make. The Difference We Make presents a straight-talking, no-nonsense view of the corruption and abuses of governments and corporations through the lens of popular music culture. Although the tradition of music as a vehicle for protest and resistance has steadily been eroded by the corporate music industry, throughout the decades many grassroots movements have survived and even thrived amidst gathering tyranny and suppression. The difference we make takes a tour of mod, punk, indie and many other music scenes that have spawned outspoken and controversial figures, talking to many well-known writers and musicians along the way. Music has the power to change human consciousness, but can it rise to the critical challenges of our age? Hello and welcome, guys, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Nice to be here, Greg. Hello, Pete. You there? I am here, yes. Thank you very much for having us both. Today, uh, we're going to talk about your book, which was published recently, The Difference We Make, and the most interesting book in terms of its the balance of contents, the ground that it covers. But before we get into that, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your personal backgrounds and how you came to do the book in the first place. Shall I go first? I think I think Grov should go first, yeah, because it was initially his idea. Okay, well, I come from a musical background, Greg. Um, I've been I've been writing songs and uh, in bands since 1980, which, which is a, which is a long time. Uh, I was in a band called Asia Fields, and you know we had some we had some sort of success 89 90 at the Manchester period uh, we've kind of thrown in with charlatans and happy mondays and in spiral carpets and such like and we went on to do an album and a few singles um, and we had a good time but i've always wrote songs but over the last well i suppose even back then there was you, the songs lyrically were were looking at problems and solutions and i suppose you'd maybe you could class them as truth songs in a way where they were a bit solution-based, a bit comical as well and ironic. But I've kind of developed that more so over the last five years. I'm in a band at the moment called The Homelies, and I'm kind of specifically just doing songs that are regarding the, the, these subjects and these topics, really, that I want to, that I want to discuss. So I've done, I've done them in a song-based format. Um, so music, yeah, I, I definitely come from a music-loving capacity. I, I, I've been into music since I was very, very small. So, but running alongside that, I've always been interested in research. I guess looking for answers, you know, to, to, to questions that were glaringly just very, very apparent, you know, to me that think that things were all was not well. I, I sort of felt this from being a child. 
and um, it kind of made me be a little bit odd, I guess, or a bit of a daydreamer. But it was a pursuit that that I'm still I'm still doing at the moment. So the two of them went went together great for me, and I met I met I met with Pete only two years ago by by pure synchronicity that was just in the same place at the same time and uh, Pete stands out like a sore thumb really in, in his regalia and stuff and I ended, up, <laughs> I ended up being stood next to him you know probably the sharpest looking guy in there and we just briefly spoke and then we met upon we made a little connection and gave each other details of you know how to contact each other and then it was a little while later I saw his stuff on Facebook and I thought oh, it's not only into music and we've not only got classic scooters and stuff like that but He's a bit of a rebel as well, you know, and um, looking at his posts and his poetry and stuff, well, they were very similar to mine. So that's quite unusual for, a, you know, just to have, like, two truthers on scooters. You won't see, you won't see many of them about. And, um, <laughs> and from, from there on, you know, I, I just saw a lot of parallels between us. And at first I thought I'd really like to do a poetry book, kind of a rebel, rebel poetry, and I, and I put the idea to him. Uh, I think you'll remember Pete the date, but it was. It was, it was the second second of January uh, last year, 2012, and yeah. I got I got a message in Facebook basically off Grov, and he's, as he's just told you, this is how we met, and it basically said about how he wanted to write this book of poetry, um, and I thought it was a fantastic idea because I love writing poetry myself, but I also thought it was a wonderful opportunity to take the book further and take the book into what it's become and this is where I'll, I'll pass back over to Grove now but uh, <laughs> I think I hit Grove with a bit of a uh, a mammoth task because I got the he come up come to me with the initial idea for the book and then I just got this crazy snowball effect in my own head of what the book should be and, and what we could include and, what, and where we might go with the book and then it was, it was back to Grove uh, back to Grove then for you know clearance on that and then the rest is history so I'd, I'd, I'd requested for us to write this book i'd asked him and and pete agreed and um yeah he threw in the, a lot of the music parts of it which i'd not really thought about even though i was involved in it he he came up with the idea of elaborating on the mod theme really and it's rebellion in in music and its influence in different genres etc I kind of found that idea interesting as well because the idea of rebellion through creativity is is a is a great one for me. There's not enough of it, and I, and I think it's a great well great way of fighting back, you know, against the system with with something that's creative and unique. So I liked the way it was all falling together. But from from there on, the ideas that we had, I've done a lot of projects, Greg, you know, over the years, and you get a lot of closed doors, or you've got to push and push. And, you know, this happens and then this doesn't and you go two forward, one back. But the doors that opened on this one were amazing. And the synchronicities and the people that just climbed aboard so 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 readily and so easily. And the contacts that they then gave us, it seemed like everybody wanted to get involved in the book, which, which made it it made it a, a joy to write and a, and, and a joy to develop, really. Well, the book's interesting, as I said earlier, in the, the balance of contents, because there's a lot in here about different music scenes and different genres over the decades. Then, of course, there's stuff that's social commentary. There's political stuff. And you've not only interviewed a lot of musicians from over the years, you've interviewed a lot of researchers, a bit like yourself, Rob, you know, who are thinking the world isn't quite the way we're led to believe it is. And uh, But basically, 
the the music that you write about over the years, it comes back again and again to the idea of protest music. You know, whether it's very obvious protest music that's very political with very explicit lyrics, or whether it's a bit more subtle than that. And it's really a a history of the the role that music plays in social and political contexts. Correct. I mean, I suppose you could take that right back to the indigenous tribes and and, and tribal music, etc. It, it was always deep and meaningful, um, even if it was just the resonance and the vibration. But but you know, if you had the lyrics as well, it, it's always been there. So it's obviously a crucial part of evolving, as far as I'm concerned. And you know, obviously, of later years, we've we've had the likes of Dylan and um, well, he he kind of got a lot of it going didn't he in the, in, in the 60s and stuff but it's it's a, it's a constant battle bit really even even through music because we've reached such a static period now for the last i'd say 20 years where there's been absolutely nothing but r&b and boy bands and obviously somebody's got control over the whole of the of the mainstream indus, industry where well maybe they did before in some ways but nothing like nothing like now it's become very very dank a dire, you know, I, I just couldn't, so much I couldn't even listen to a radio station anymore unless it was, you know, something that I knew wasn't, wasn't playing anything from the mainstream. It's become awful. Obviously, it's tied up in a corporate way. And obviously, they're using symbology and lyrics to their to their advantage for certain. You know, if you, if you just look at some of the symbology that Lady Gaga and, you know, Myris, what's she called? Miley Cyrus. Yeah, and in fact, so many of them, so many of them, and they're on the TV, you know, at six, seven o'clock, the guests on the X Factor and all this kind of thing, and it's it's pure symbology and, um, I think, sexualising young children and stuff, it's, it's become really awful. So I, I'm really hoping, it's well overdue, but I'm really hoping that, that something's going to come along soon and um, shake everything up in the way that Punk did. It really needs it, doesn't it, more than ever at the moment. I don't know if I can just interject there as well. I think uh, going carrying on from what Groff was just saying then about music, present day music, um, there is one um, great thing happening, and that and that's young bands. The young bands that are uh, emerging now. The, the punk scene's re-emerged. The mod scene again is re-emerging. Uh, mod influenced bands are uh, re-emerging. And, you know, we 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 employed the uses of a band called the Marquettes uh, for our book launch uh, and for a further book signing date that we did a couple of weeks ago and they sound absolutely fantastic and it's really encouraging again to see young bands that are playing serious good music they're actually still playing the guitars and playing the drums and giving it their all you know um, and it, it and it is a bit of a an antidote to this absolute mainstream nonsense that we've had that we've had to endure for the past five ten years yeah I think I've talked to a lot of young bands in the course of my work and a lot of them cite um these are guys that are just in their early 20s now if they're even out of their teens and they cite the, a band like libertines for example as kind of coming along and burning brightly for a short time but really ushering in a new generation of guitar bands and i think you're, you're both absolutely right if you look at the mainstream you turn on the, the, the mainstream tv or radio channels what you're going to get stuffed in your ears uh you know chewing gum basically the equivalent of but underground under you look under stones you know look down dark alleys just places where the mainstream won't go and i think there's a there's a lot of healthy stuff happening it doesn't mean of course that it's all conscious or has some kind of awareness or meaning behind it but you know it's i think it's a lot healthier than as i say you would guess just by looking at the mainstream but yeah of course it's uh 
it, like I mean, it doesn't need to be socially aware or you know it doesn't have to be to be switched on and awake I, I just think the fact that something is um, being created that's 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 new it is is good in any in any sense of the word you know and there are a lot of young bands now that are picking up and going going through it like the old school you know like playing gigs and building up a following and perhaps looking it's a different world than it was 20 years ago but perhaps looking for a single deal and a record deal kind of harping back to the independent you know the indie days of 80s and 90s and so yeah it is inspiring and they've always been there of course you it's just I think you have to look a bit harder these days because none of them, there's hardly anything getting in the mainstream charts. It's very rare, whereas before, good indie bands, they were they, they were always popping in and out of, of the um, of the charts, you know. And I say indie, just 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 as I mean an independent, more not 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 the actual old style of music, but I, I think it's it's become less and less really that the emergence of of good bands in the charts. But I'm I'm, op- I'm hoping that it's going to change. Uh, well, one look at your book, and it becomes immediately apparent that you know the aforementioned mod scene, past and present, is a really important part of all this. Uh, now, Pete, um, just judging by not just the fact you got these scooters, but judging by the fact of your dress, were you part of that original scene? And and if so, I'm just wondering about the significance of it, um, because for someone like me who was never into that that scene, my most of what I know quote-unquote about mod scene comes from watching Quadrophenia multiple times and in that it's portrayed as kind of just a hedonistic rebellious youth movement but perhaps you could just tell us about you know your experience of it and what you think the significance wider significance of it was and is. Uh, you're absolutely right I mean my first introduction to the mod scene was through Quadrophenia. Uh, I am what I quote at what I the term I use is a quadro mod. Uh, I was 13 years of age. I was playing truant from school one afternoon at a friend's house uh, where we used to go and watch videos, which had just come out at that time. You know, the, the, the new VHS players. I, I come from a poor background. Uh, we couldn't afford a VHS player back in those days. So we had to go to my mate's posh house in the posh part of town um, whilst his parents were at work. And we watched two, two videos one afternoon, one Wednesday afternoon. Um, but the first one was The Warriors, which was the American uh, gang movie. Oh, Walter Hill, yeah, he's made so many great films. Absolutely, uh, and it was, and that it was a bit of a cult movie with those young kids at that time because it was full of violence, it was full of gang fights, and you know that's what you. And we're thirteen years of thirteen years of age, our testosterone had just kicked in, and that's you know that's the kind of thing that we was interested in. Uh, but anyway, I watched this, I watched watched The Warriors, and it was okay, and I wasn't sorry to see the the end credits. And then we this other film started, which I'd never even heard of, uh, called Quadrophenia. And, we'd ne- and obviously no one had ever heard that word before, Quadrophenia, the movie come out. But not of our age, obviously the older generation had heard Quadrophenia, the album, which came out in 1973. Uh, which is obviously what the soundtrack for the movie is based on. Uh, but I watched Quadrophenia for the first time ever. And I had a bit of an um, enlightening moment. When I was very young, I had a serious head injury and I had a, a, a metal bar stuck into my skull, uh, which nearly caused uh, permanent brain damage. But as a result of this, this head injury, I've, I've had a lifetime of uh, bipolar manic depression. Now, when you're growing up in a tough town like the town that I grew up in, the one thing that you didn't do was start telling your mates that you had some kind of a mental illness because then you'd be just picked on, bullied and, you know, name-called forever. 
um, so it was something that I very much kept to myself. And then going back to Quadrophenia, I was sat there watching Quadrophenia this Wednesday afternoon, and my mate's I was playing through, and and that for the first time was the first time I've ever ever seen someone that's that's suffering the same kind of mental mental illness that I was suffering. It was someone that I could relate to immediately, and it, and it was an overwhelming overwhelming kind of realization that hold on it's not just me that has these kind of thoughts and feelings and it doesn't it's not just me that has these this strained relationship with his parents and with his father uh and with and especially with authority and i've always i've always had a strange relation you know with um with authority uh i talk about it in the book when i was when i was at primary school uh sorry not primary school infant school i was about eight eight or nine years of age and I've I've always been a bit of a, a clever kid. And when I was when I was very young, when I was seven or eight, I was teaching myself German, uh, German language, from some uh, books that my, bro- my my dad had bought back from his days in the army in Germany. Um, and I taught myself like the days of the week and then numbers like one to a hundred and such lines and the months of the year and you know other such short phrases and whatever. And I was at school one day and I went to a pre- I, I thought. I was a bit of a bit of a naughty kid at school, so I thought I'd try and go and impress the teacher and try and score some brownie points. And I went to the teacher uh, and said, "You know, sir, I'm learning German, and today's day is Voldenstag, which is Wednesday in German." And without without mentioning a word to me, without saying a word to me, he just looked at me and just backhanded me straight in the face, and you know, not me completely flat on my backside. And it was that that moment, that split moment when I was eight years out, eight years of age, or whatever it was, that I just looked at authority for exactly what it is, and it's just an abusive system of control in 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 pretty much every single layer and element that it's that it's intertwined into society, which I've only learned since, obviously. But it was that split moment that I was just as as grub called me before a bit of a rebel so going back to again to quadrophenia here i'm seeing this this young character here called jimmy who's going through his mental illnesses he's going through his strange relationships with his friends and his parents and his 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 betters and who's you know really really trying and 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 every time that he tries to fit into a a, a particular clique a particular circle of of people and with it with that film obviously it was about the mod scene was again something that I, that I could relate to immediately because it's something that I've always tried to do myself as well. I've always tried to fit in and never quite fitted in. But then, as soon as I'd seen Quadrophenia and, and me being the psychologically minded person that I am, it all started to fall into place and make a little bit of sense. And so my you know my attitudes and my approach to life was completely different from that day forward. And that's why Quadrophenia. Uh, not just for me, is, will, will remain a cult movie because of its impact that it has with young adolescent, predominantly males, but certainly it, you know it's affected the lives of a lot of girls as well. It is a massively affecting film. Um, it's a simple script. It's a simple plot. It's a sim. There's not much of a plot to it, but, but you know it's a simple. But the underlying messages and the underlying references to youth and growing up and where you fit in in the world are all completely you know um included within that movie and such as i said from this day watching from the first day that i watched it i walked out of my friend's house and i was a mod the day after so i was a 13 year old mod back in 1980 back 1980 was when the first time i saw it but the mod scene in general uh, and the reason that we carried on 
I have been a modern since uh, since watching uh, that movie. Been thirteen. I'm forty six now, by the way, so for thirty three years. But the the relevance of the mod scene uh, and the, and and the reason that I, I bought into it so much was was again to do with its rebellion. The first youth rebellion group, probably in the world, it, 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 our recent history, was the Beatniks uh, in America. Uh, the beatniks that had, had, had found this, you know, uh, political, socio-political awareness, uh, and they were speaking out about, it, and that's, you know, from the emergence of that, and the emergence of, on the back of then the music, which was Grove was talking about before, you had, the, you know, the likes of Dylan in the early sixties. It was, um, it was bringing these uh, subject, this subject matter to the fore, uh, but it was all, it was all politically motivated and politically, politically charged, uh, and, and I've always had a. An interest myself in politics, uh, and I've always had a doubt of politics because I've never been able to grasp the concept of what makes one man better than the next man, what makes one man more important than the next man. I don't, I, I don't recognise the Queen for the very same reason because she's just an old lady. She's just an old lady in a position. She's no different than my old lady, my mother. Except my mother lives in a ward and control flat and doesn't live in Buckingham Palace and 15 other palaces. You know, but, but what makes this woman different? And I can't, I can't get my head around that. And I, I think that's why I wanted to write the book with Grove, was to to challenge all them different ideas, to challenge this thing about assumed authority and and how it's become abused and misused now over. Well, you mentioned Dylan and um, <clears throat> protest music, you know, and in the early days of that. Certainly, when we get into the seventies, again, we mentioned Quadrophenia, the, the Who putting that album out. Then things got, you know, that original summer of love, we know what happened there. It just basically died on its feet, you know, Vietnam, all the rest of it, and Altamont. And it, things took a very dark turn. But the music that was had significance and meaning in the 70s was becoming a little bit more subtle. Not always, but sometimes. And you can certainly see a band like Who, The Who, Black Sabbath. A lot of the bands that were big in the 70s really made their careers then had this underlying, not in all their songs or albums by any means, but this underlying th- current of commentary social and political commentary and people think of the 70s they quite often think of prog rock and they maybe think of glam you know t-rex bowie and it's all very hedonistic and escapist but then you had a band like that came to prominence in the 70s let's say like pink floyd who are wrapped up with the prog scene but you look at that sequence of albums they did for example dark side of the moon wish you were here animals and the wall each one getting more and more stark and blatant commenting on not just the music business, but on society, politics, the, the direction the world was headed in. And when punk came along towards the end of the 70s, well, mid-70s really, I suppose, that was seen as diametrically opposed to so-called dinosaur bands like Floyd, like The Who. But in actual fact, they probably had more in common than they realised. You're absolutely right there, Greg. I mean, uh, them two bands predominantly, Pink Floyd and The Who, throughout the 70s, uh, and... Let, let's not make no bones about it. The Who had become a rock band by the 70s. They started off as a, they started off basically as a skiffle band uh, in the late 50s. Uh, by the early 60s, they'd been signed, and then Pete Meaden, the first manager, uh, wanted to turn them into a mod band, and they changed their name to the High Numbers um, and wrote a couple of songs on their behalf. You know, not giving Pete Townsend his full credit for writing some of the best songs that have ever been written. <laughs> So they had this mod identity throughout the 60s, but then as soon as they hit the 70s, as soon as they hit 1969, they had fast become a rock band. But then, like you said, the, 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 
the rise then from psychedelic from the psychedelic mod scene from the start from the emergence of uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, I've seen Pink Floyd twice, and they're just an absolutely amazing, amazing band live and visually. I mean, the, the, the stage show that they give you visually, it's just absolutely unbelievable. But you're very right about Pink Floyd's lyrics as well. I mean, Roger Waters is, is, is what I consider to be one of the best lyricists ever, uh, ever to come from this country, without a shadow of a doubt. He's Britain's Bob Dylan. Uh, he's very politically minded. He's very socially minded. And I've enjoyed listening to Pink Floyd since I was probably 14 years of age. And I've been listening to some more again uh, tonight. But you're absolutely right that that, that it, it was them bands throughout, uh, throughout the early 70s and the mid-70s. But then with the emergence of punk, that's when the world woke up. And that's what, again, another uh, thing that we discussed in, in a little bit of detail in the book. Yeah, managed... the, the thing I had was, sorry to interrupt you, the thing I had with punk... Oh, was I didn't care for I mean I was a little bit too young to get punk fully you know by the time I was getting into music it was a so-called UK 82 scene you know with the exploited and um, you know bands like that so GBH it moved on a little bit mm. but was how the punk thing got and not all the bands fell victim to this by any means but as typified by Malcolm McLaren it's how it got co-opted yet again and turned into a product you know oh. and the Sex Pistols you know they're just the poster boys for that, and I've got respect. For yeah. jo- I've got respect for John Lydon, no question about it. But I, I can't even I see Malcolm McLaren's face. It, you know, I start to get you know on edge. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, um, Malcolm McLaren was your first corporate for Christ's sake. He was going on about how independent and how you know single-minded he was. He was single-minded. He was single-minded about himself because he didn't really give a toss about the band anyway. It, it was him getting rich on the on the back on the back of them. It was just four very young naive musicians. But then four young, naive musicians had a very, very important, massively important place in history because they were the first kids that actually stood in front of the TV cameras and says, we've had enough, you know, we've had enough of taking your bullshit. We've had enough of taking your political nonsense. We are going to stand out and we have, we've had enough of this German-Jewish family governing over us. No recall to justice or whatever. You know, they're just free to reign. And we've had enough of that. And it was Sex Pistols when they signed the deal for, with A&M outside the gates of Buckingham Palace in 1977. And I was, I was born in 67, so I was 10 years of age when I witnessed that. And that massively, massively impressed me. And credit might not go to their musicianship, it might not go to their longevity, but it will certainly go to the impact that they made within the world of music because from punk, you then got the modern revival period of the late 70s, 1978, 1979, into the early 80s. And it was with that re-emergence then of the mod scene and, and, um, and, and the punk element when, um, and the bedroom bands were starting up again, you know what I mean? The four lads were getting together and just saying, right, we can do it because the Sex Pistols can do it or, you know, stiff little fingers can do it. But what you've also got to remember as well is that punk was singing about, they were singing about social, political um, subject matter all the time. In every one of the songs, they were singing about the struggle, they were singing about the pain, they were singing about the, the everyday mundanity of things especially in the late 70s because it was on a three-day working week and power cuts every other day. You know, they were struggling. They were living through some crap times. And youth in itself, youth found itself in the late 50s, but by, by the time the 70s came, by the time punk came in Britain, youth had well and truly put its foot down and says, we're here. 
and stuck out its middle finger to this society and to the establishment and made its mark, and rightfully so, because users never looked back since until recently. And it needs now to... It, it's the youth of today that will be the middle-aged generation of tomorrow and the, and the older generations of later. And those kids are the ones that are responsible for the world that we live in. They're the ones that are responsible for any differences that are going to be made, and they're the ones that are responsible for any changes that are going to be made. And they can only do that if they are all basically tuned in and not singing from the same hymn sheet, but, you know, thinking along the same kind of lines. And we can't get anywhere in this world, in this world with bullshit. We need truth. Yeah, well, we'll get, we'll get up to date with where we are now uh, <clears throat> just in a little bit. But you mentioned uh, the end of the 70s there and uh, so-called winter of discontent and things were bad, you know, as you say, all sorts of uh, problems with um, society stemming from problems with industry, which is coming down from problems with government. Yeah. But uh, then we got into the 1980s and not immediately, of course, but when Thatcher came on the scene, things changed because, well, I say they changed, they changed in many ways for the worse. And I often call the 80s the decade of decadence because it all became about superficiality and gloss and what have you but a lot of those problems that were there at the late 70s they didn't go away as such it's just that they, they were literally glossed over with some of that sheen i mentioned and it gave the the decade a different character and it by no means um a, a decade that you can write off um you know there's lots of cliches about the 80s you know the whole greed is good gordon gecko loads of guys with um you know slim jim ties and ponytails taking coke and canary wharf all of those cliches are cliches for a reason. But there was a, a dark underbelly to the 80s too. And that was also reflected in some of the music that came along. Uh, you know, because you had Ska, for example, reflected a lot of that. You think of the specials and, and Ghost Town. Um, you had the post-punk and the new wave bands, the Joy Division, for example. And a lot of them were, were bringing, if not intellectual, they were bringing a more philosophical, thoughtful aspect to their music and lyrics. And even, as I say, if it was mainly symbolic and subliminal and subtle, there was something there that wasn't that didn't just cave into the overall um, tone of the 80s, which, as I say, was one of just, you know, party like it's 1999. You're absolutely right about the, uh, the scar thing. And, and one thing you've got to include in that is the two-tone movement. And the two-tone movement was ultimately responsible for the unification of black and white in this country. Um, because blacks and whites had always lived in separate um, communities and distanced themselves from each other, and it was it it was that um, that unificate that musical unification, and especially with two tone, and especially with bands like UB40, uh, who were massive at the time, um, bringing that that black and white you together, and thankfully it stayed together and it still does and, and the scooter scene uh the mod scene and, and you know the continuation of that scene in this country is it's, it's the the mod scene is the only scene in this country the only subculture in this country that's lasted for 50 years i know the rockers might the, the rockers might contend that and say you know we're just as prominent now as we was back then but they're not um the mod scene has always been a little bit I'm, I'm fishing for a fishing for an adject which I'm not gonna I'm not gonna find. But it's always been a prominent scene. It's always been a popular scene. Again, like I said, it's just enjoying a, a re-emergence now. But it wouldn't have got anywhere without without that late 70s punk time, uh, that late 70s, early 80s um, two-tone mod revival, call it what you will, time. Um, that was massively important for this whole country in the unification, like I say, of blacks and whites. One other thing that we saw 
which I thought was very significant in the, in the early 1980s, was the demise of the free festivals. And these things had been around well, since the 60s, I guess, and lasted throughout the 70s. And those were a real thorn in the authorities' side, not so much because of any trivial law-breaking that might have gone on, people smoking pot in a field for a weekend or whatever, but it was because it represented, again, not in all cases, but it represented a radical alternative to the ways that we were all being told that, you know, life was good. You know, the whole semi-detached house, wash the car on Sunday, mow the lawn, take the kids to school, get a good job, keep your head down, pay your taxes and be a good boy. And what the free festivals represented was a viable, might not be for everybody, but a viable alternative to that. And that, that, as I see it, that couldn't be allowed to continue. Uh, apart from the fact there was no profit involved, and I think that's what the governments couldn't get the get the red round is because it was a non-profit making thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but the, the way that the brutality with which they were shut down. I mean, for people who don't know, or even people who remember the Battle of the Beanfield, and I think that was 1984, Stonehenge, all you know, and other free festivals that were based in London and the home counties. The brutality with which that was suppressed, and that also applied to not just people who would roll up and organize and attend these festivals, but people who actually lived somewhat of a nomadic life without a lot of the, um, you know, things that we take for granted in in more mainstream society, that spoke to something a little bit more than there's no profit in this. Because even where there is profit in something, I mean, you look at, for example, at Glastonbury, that's now just a big corporate business. But that started yeah. out as, not maybe in the spirit of the free festivals as such, but it was radically different to what it is now. Well, I think the the band that we need to immediately mention is the Levelers because the Levelers and Mark Chadwick, the the lyricist, uh, Mark Chadwick is probably one of the best protest lyricists again that this country has ever produced. He's certainly on a par with with Roger Waters, but on a you know in two different genres of music. Um, and the Battle of the Beanfield, as you spoke about just a minute ago, very very necessary to have these kinds of these these socially aware. Uh, musicians and lyricists and artists and that to get the message out there to their broader, you know, to their broader audience. And I think it's something that we we need to promote more and more and more these days. Uh, this book that we've been rather done, it's an independent publication. You know, it's, this is me and him doing it. We've not got some big multi-million pound publishing house behind us backing us and you know promoting the book and doing everything, doing everything on our behalf. We're doing it, including you know from writing the book to posting the book. Or even in some cases, me personally delivering it on my scooter. <laughs> you, know, you don't get that on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly I, don't. I, I like the point you made, Greg. Before, um, sorry for for jumping in there, but the point that you um, that you made about the ferocity of of which uh, the free festivals were, were were stopped. Always, you must always look at that. You know that that's a huge problem for the government when they when they when they move in them kind of ways. Or, you know, I say the government, but they obviously they were they were behind it as you go up the pyramid. When you look at the way they deal with things, you know, they they wanted that stamping out for a reason. And I think another another one of the reasons is they don't like that. Um, well, this is probably going off an, an adjacent thing here, but they don't like that vibrational construct of people getting together because it gives off an energy, and it's you know it, it's um, it's not the energy that they that they want. They're in control of energy constructs, you know, and they keep everything down. They keep everything fear based. And, and and I don't think they like the idea of a collective energy of, of positive vibes. And and you may, you could maybe even throw in throw in the vibe of of 
of the vibration of love there, you know, at some of those festivals and stuff. But certainly a lot of people coming together and raising a vibrational energy. I think you you, you must always look at the the way government and the police handle things. It's the same as, you know, I mean, you can you can go and rape somebody, or you can, and you'll get a gentle tap on your door, and you might go to court a bit later on. But if you grow three or four of God's plants in your attic, you'll get four riot vans, you know, 18 police with riot shields and helmets on, bashing your door down, you know. So it was, it was, it was an interesting point that you raised, that the ferocity of, of, of how, how they did that. There's always a reason behind it. Can I, can I, can I just add as well that you're right there, Groff, because uh, the 1980s rave scene was a you know, prime example of that. Uh, what people were loved up. I know that because I was part of it, and it was an amazing atmosphere. It was drug induced, but it was an amazing atmosphere, and an amazing uh, interaction between humans. Uh, and it's something that you will never see uh, under normal, you know, everyday circumstances and lawful circumstances, albeit. Um, but yeah, the the rave scene was very much, very much part of that as well. Well, it's an interesting point here for me personally because. Um... I, when I first started going to what we could understand as truth conferences, whether they were talking about 9-11 or talking about banking cartel or talking about UFOs, whatever it happened to be, it was people coming together to get into some very interesting topics, listen to people doing presentations on their special area. And after initially going to a few of those, I reached a point where I thought, this is a talking shop. It's interesting, but what's the, it's always the same faces, you know. But someone pointed out to me later, and I had to agree with them, that actually maybe some of those events are like that, but do you know what? It does generate an energy, and sometimes it can be well worth spending whatever it is, 50 quid, $75, to have your mm. attendance <laughs> for two days somewhere to just be immerse yourself in that energy that you just don't get if you're sitting at home alone looking at the internet. It's absolutely correct. That um, you, you don't get that. You don't get that energy. You don't get that energy if you go into a pub. If you if you go into a public place, it's uh, it's something to do with people being aware and they, they, you know they must be resonating at a different kind of frequency for some reason. Perhaps they are in tune with things more, and perhaps they have got more more of empathy for for fellow man, etc. You know, and and you do if if you're in an event like that, you know, it can leave you. It can leave you quite dizzy sometimes, and quite there there is a heightened energy there for for certain. You know, you, you couldn't deny that if you walk into it, you, you can feel it immediately. And obviously, that kind of thing would be a, a definite problem, because that's the way to change things, really. I think personally, you know, this is only my opinion, but I think the way to change things, and you you, you know. I mean, everything's important. Whether you, you know, whether you're studying Pythagoras, you know, and, and and his influence on Stonehenge or Fibonacci codes, you know, Vedic proofs of reality, the Tetrad. You can. There's loads of different things. Nag Hammadi, the Madrid bloody codex. You can go into all of those things. But, but for me now, I I, I just feel that the way things are going to change is to change to change an inner vibration on on some level and of course people have been saying that for thousands of years it's not it's not my doing it's just it's just the way I, the way i see things changing now is definitely on a, on, on a personal level to raise your own your own vibrations your own awareness because yeah, it does seem clear that that protest doesn't work you know because no. you, you get a million person march against the iraq war but it was always going to go ahead anyway and this is this is not a council for apathy or despair far from it it's just that there are certain ways that we get channeled into venting our frustrations that are designed very much to dissipate them and control them and they don't work 
they don't work. They, they'll never work. They may, they, you know, they, they, sometimes it's good. It's sometimes it's good to know other people are on your side and to to have a measure of, um, you know, where, where the sort of truth movement maybe is or where the the awakening where that is. Yeah, it's nice to see. There's a million protesters in Madrid. Sometimes it it, it can make you feel okay, but it isn't the answer. Definitely, if, you know, I think the answer is. Well, it's that choice again. You know, a lot of people have said it, but you either, you either go down the fear route or you go down the love route. There's only two emotions for me, and everything else is a, a derivative of, of those. And, and I think, you know, if you can stand, stand in your own sovereignty, good in your heart, you know, intending to do nice things for people, and you know, have good intention. I think, I think if everybody can kind of, if everybody did that to, to a degree, a lot, of, a lot of things would change. It's definitely on an inner level you know you definitely have to change yourself you know, you start with yourself shall, shall we say i think that that's become that's become apparent to me after 25 years of research you know they do say you can't change the world but you can change the world in you exactly yeah and um i, I just wish i wouldn't have wasted 25 years <laughs> and i'd have got that straight away what we, it's all what interesting got- you know what we've also got to consider as well is, though, that there's a lot of social expectations and a lot of social, you know, restrictions that we've got with ourselves. You know, we're not we're not as open as society as we to be beyond the internet, obviously. I mean, but, we, but socially on the streets, you know, I used to work in the pub trade for 20 years, and um, it, I'm strongly of the belief that this blanket smoking ban that the government brought into um, basically shut down three quarters of the pubs that this country ever had. Uh, was one of the ways of basically, you know, breaking up our one of our last meeting places. It was the, the, the pub, the pub game, and I got into it. That's where I learned a lot of my politics and a lot of my social politics was in the tap rooms of pubs, full of smoke and full of 60, 70, 80 year old blokes putting the world to rights. And the governments don't like these congregational meeting places where society and communities will put their world to rights. I mean, look, they've shut down all our pubs, they've shut down community centres, they don't fund community centres, they don't want communities and society getting together to share ideas. So, thankfully, we've got the internet. Well, you read my mind, Pete, because uh, Grove had mentioned pubs, and that's, I was going to come on to this demise of pub culture, and I, I'm in complete agreement with you. You don't have to get too conspiratorial about it, but clearly... There's, you know, alcohol consumption has never been higher. So it doesn't, it's not like people don't want to have a drink anymore. (laughs) Obviously, there's a downside to that as well. But yeah, it's now the pubs used to be a place. Obviously, some pubs are just jukeboxes and, you know, people yelling at the top of their voices or maybe just trying to, it's a meat market. They're just trying to pick someone up. But a lot of the real good pub was somewhere where you're right. You'd set the world to rights. And if you were a younger guy, you know, you could learn, you know, certainly when I first went into pubs, way before I was old enough to drink, but I'd go in sometimes with my granddad. And it was, it was these older guys that had the worldly wisdom and it was fascinating to listen to them speak. But now it's the blue glow in everyone's front room as people sit around the television, you know, and, um, you know, that that's their evening. You know, they get their beer from Tesco and then they sit in front of the goggle box. And this this is the beauty of the internet, and this is the beauty of Facebook, and meeting people like me, meeting Groff. Uh, you know, we we live eight miles apart from each other. Without Facebook and without that similarity of circles, we we would we would never have met. But um, I wasn't being overly conspiratorial when I said about it's you know it's a, one of the government ways of shutting down these commu- these community social meeting places. But the problem with the pub game now, and the reason that it's become very, it's just ultimately corporate. 
there's very very few private landlords still running their boozers that the mums and dads and grandfathers and you know great grandfathers had run pubs now are owned by holding companies that own 250 pubs and I, I don't want this to sound you know slanderous in any way shape or form but Weatherspoon certainly didn't do the pub trade any favours because they just went in there undercut every single pub in town basically made them struggle to, to compete and then 12 months after Weatherspoons had basically blanketed the, the country with their cheap pubs the government brought in this smoking ban which was basically just the final nail in the coffin for the the locals, uh, you know, the local boozer that was dependent on the 50, uh, on the 60, 70, 80-year-old afternoon drinkers. Well, this is a, sort of like st- what Starbucks do, isn't it? It is a corporatization of everything. Starbucks come in. And it's youth-driven or youth-oriented, you know. Yeah, yeah. They, they open more coffee shops than, than are sustainable, but they know they can afford to make a bit of a loss. Some of the local places close down, and then Starbucks close half theirs, and there they are. As they, um, I'm not trying to single them out. You know, there's lots of businesses operate that way, but um, other companies are uh, are responsible and are operating, of course. But as soon as the corporates become involved, everything becomes dilute. It just becomes it becomes like a single layer of film on a on a table. It's it's flat. It's boring. There's no dimension to it. It's just all it's all all it's driven by is profit, and there's got to be something more to you know, spending your, your so, the only few hours you've got of your social life sat in somewhere than just being extortionately charged, you know, nearly four pounds for a pint of lager. What well, related to the pub closures is music venues closing down, and a lot of these music venues are also were also pubs. You know, just pubs that had a tradition of putting on bands, and we see the same corporatization taking place in venues now. For example. It's a string of venues um, operated by O2, the mobile phone company, or not operated by them, sorry, it's just branded O2. And these are quite relatively diverse venues in terms of their history, in terms of their architecture and how they used to operate. But now that they're under the O2 banner, they object a bit like McDonald's and Starbucks is to make them as similar as possible so that you know what you're going to get when you go to an O2 venue, whether it's a four pound pint of carling, whatever it happens to be. Oh, the shows that will be the carling venues, but they sponsor them as well. But, you know, it's to sanitize things. Now, there are certain improvements that come with this. You know, maybe some people don't miss the days of the, the sticky carpets in clubs and the toilets that you can smell before you see them, et cetera, et cetera. But it does come at a cost. They're doing this, aren't they? They're doing well, it's a, a very, very deliberate ploy that they're, that, they're, that they're using here. Um, they're also doing it with, with architecture. You know, you can... You can go in any country now in Europe and you'd struggle a lot of the times to know where you were. They're kind of taking the identity out, out of most things and making this this bland kind of similar, um, well, architecture. But also you've just said it, you know, with venues and, and with with uh, places that people drink coffee and places that people meet. They're taking, again, they're taking the creativity out, out of almost everything. And you, the sad thing is some 15, even 20-year-olds now wouldn't wouldn't really know any different you know we, we've been blessed a little bit because we're probably the last of the people to enjoy that those creative venues creative architecture creative cities i feel quite lucky but it'll be a distant memory if, if something doesn't come along soon and 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 change it but i believe it will come along um i think it's I think- destined to but it, it it's um uh, it's, it's, it's a deliberate thing that they're doing for for certain 
like you say sanitising is, is a good word sanit- the sanitising and trying to make everything uniform and, and there's one thing that humanity is not and humanity is not uniform there's 6 billion of us on this planet and there's 6 billion different individual independently thinking brains on this planet we cannot be uniformly expected to perform and and you know exist well it's kind uh, of a forceman the, isn't the it each other. Well, that's what it, that's it, this is exactly what they're trying to do. Or it's what I believe they're trying to do. Um, you know, look at the industrialization of schools. Uh, in, in in my town alone, we used to have four or five very very commendable uh, primary and infant infant schools. Every single one of them got knocked down, and they moved it into this big warehouse shaped building, nowhere near the centre of town. I used to try. Now all these parents and you know, have got to take their kids to school in the morning. I've got to travel from the furthest outreaches of town to go to this big education mill and I can, I can you know I dread to think what the what the curriculum's like in there so this unification or this uniformation should I say it, it extends to every level and every every age group yeah and you're right what what goes on in there isn't good either it's all left brain logic it's exactly. all um, t- it's, again it's further s- stunting people's creativity there's very little right right brained activities very little drama music it's re- really the well, they're just conditioning them, aren't they, for a lifetime of school of, of will work. teach you. Any school will teach you three things. It will teach you to read, to write, and to count, and that is all it will ever teach you because you will never remember what they taught you in history, apart from the uh, the stuff that's repeated to you, that's drilled into you. You're never going to remember much from geography. You're never going to remember much from metal work unless you become an engineer or something. So you're going to remember to read, write, and you're going to remember to count. And that's well, I, it. I call them expectation management facilities because. It's very much about giving you a view of the world and this is what you will expect when you leave. So we, the sort of things you'll expect to do, the sort of things you can expect to hope for or to be uh, are all quite narrowly channeled. And that's really what school's about. And there was, and there was a time when people speaking like this would be dismissed immediately as conspiracy theorists, but there's so much work being done on it now, you know, right back to what they talk about as the Prussian model for schooling, and it's documented. Uh, I recommend people check out the work of a guy, American guy called John Taylor Gatto, and he will set out for you in great detail and at great length uh, the, you know, the true purpose behind the formal compulsory education system. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. It's, it's um, definitely definitely um, by design. There are some forces at play that, that, that are planning and plotting this this demise of our of, of our creativity and our expectation of what we can i mean it and it's very difficult i mean i've got quite a few children you know and they, they, there's a big age group between them but i have an 11 year old and um between him and his brother who's 20 there's a whole um oh, it's changed dramatically at school it, it it really has changed unbelievably so i've seen i've seen it i've seen it changing just through my own children and um i'll not i'll not be keeping him in i'll not be keeping him in this education system more than another few months I'm making plans to pull him out it's it's that bad because it's his life by the time he gets to eighteen obviously they've extended the amount of time that the brain conditioning goes on now to eighteen it is a finished article almost so it's very important for me for me as as a parent to concentrate on that fully you know he's just pops his head around the door laughing here because he knows he's getting out of school <laughs> but it, it, it's um it, it's incredible to to not promote somebody's kind of um ability to create things and 
I mean, we're, we're capable of such marvellous, marvellous things. Absolutely incredible and and, it, and it's tragic it's tragic what what they've done to our children and and you know it upsets me greatly and and and, it, and i'm concerned for obviously what's to come as they become adults etc because the damage is, is done in a lot of ways and, and you know I'm, I'm just hoping that it i'm hoping that something comes along to 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 correct it you look at some highly successful people you know steve jobs richard branson there's a string of others i could list and i'm not condoning or otherwise how they what they've done with their lives and their businesses but there's a load of people like that that you can cite that that dropped out of school earlier never went never had any formal schooling so the idea that having these qualifications so-called these bits of paper um which really only proves that you've managed to memorize something just long enough to get through the exam the idea that that somehow prepares you for how the world really is or on the other hand fosters and brings out your innate creativity is just false a lot, a lot of people can't even. Um, there's no, there's no practical skills that, that they're shown anymore. You know, just, just survival skills, forging, or you know, even sewing a button on a shirt. Just all of, all of those basic skills that my parents had, where, where they could survive. They could, they could um, create things. They could mend things. They could fix things. They could grow things in the garden. All of these have been, have been eliminated from, from school curriculum. And, and, and again, again, it is easy to be, cons- to be like. Just to accuse me of being a conspiracy theorist, but it's just not so that they actually have been eliminated, and and people are are not afforded these skills anymore. And there's a there's a reason behind that. We we just become so dependent upon whatever they whatever it is we need that somebody above us will give it to us. It's it's um, again it's it's all by design. We mentioned uh, left brain thinking, and before I forget, one little thing I want to interject with. Thomas Sheridan, who's a chap I've interviewed um, several times, and I know he's a contributor to your book as well. We'll come on to the, the other contributors in a moment. But we've discussed the idea, we talked about music a lot today, the politicians and the controllers and these elites that we're talking about, all these technocrats that seek to, to make everything uniform, control our lives. We look at their music taste. <laughs> and Thomas and I talked about this much to our mutual amusement <laughs> and a lot of these people, through their music taste, which can be, you know, just doesn't make any sense. I'm all for like eclecticism, you know, but it, it just doesn't make any sense. These people, a lot of them are actually, if not psychopaths, borderline psychopaths. And when you look at other areas of life that, that we consider normal, like your music taste, it's just something organic that you grew up with and it develops over the course of your life. It, like, for example, they had, was it David Cameron, who's the current prime minister head of the Conservative Party here in the UK. I'm saying this for the benefit of overseas listeners. Yep. And he was on Desert Island Discs. So if you don't know what that is, folks, you can you can look it up. And one of the records he chose was Benny Hill's, I can't remember oh. the full title, but something like Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West. And this is yeah, a, title. a stupid oh. novelty song on a par with a birdie song. And I remember I, I was in the bathroom at the time. I was having a bath and I remember stopped and looked at the radio and I thought, this guy can't be serious. He, you know, wow. he's he, not just because the song's bad, but if he's actually put that forward as one of his choices, that tells us something. I'm not even sure what that, it is, but that tells me that I can quite clearly now picture David Cameron doing the birdie and the Tweety song and waving his arms up and down because he's just cut out to be that kind of bloke. And as for having serious music taste, I think he quoted uh, last week at Prime Minister's Question Times. Uh, 
the London Nil Hull 4 album by uh, the House Martins. And Paul Heaton then went onto Twitter and basically reminded David Cameron that he's banned from his pub <laughs> for life. <laughs> so, and so is George Osborne. <laughs> um, and went into a very, very anti-Tory um, tirade. Well, you mentioned Paul Heaton. And so and I said, basically, we, yeah. I said we'd get on to some of your contributors. Um, so your book, just to remind listeners once again, it's called The Difference We Make. And it's not just writings by you guys, but Thomas Sheridan, who I mentioned, um, he's in there, Paul Heaton. You talk to a lot of musicians and a lot of researchers, and they've all contributed little bits that, that form the second half of the book, haven't they? So we tried to connect a theme of, um, well, it was difficult, really, as Pete will, will um, back me up. It was, it was very difficult to tie together truthism with modism and, and and with 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 Manchester and with punk, but the the theme that we've 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 tried to to underlay throughout the book is rebellion. What makes people rebel? What makes people look at society and think that's you, you know that's absolutely flawed? So we, we we try to tease certain questions out of the um, the contributors and and they, they were they were great. It was it was through them really that the book kind of found some uniformity. And we was able to to tie all these these themes together. I mean, we've got we've got interviews from say from Santos Bonacci to a gangster in London, and they're quite similar, although they're very different, you know, and they're coming at it from very different things. But they're both unhappy with with the system that's being forced upon them, um, and and the rebellion. However, they choose to rebel is is the interesting thing of the book for me. You know, one studying national think, shamanism and one's a gangster in London. But I think what I think like what it. that is though, Grov, is uh, that we've all got a social awareness. You know what I mean? Regardless of what, wherever you are in society, everyone's got a social awareness. And and from the gangsters to the journalists, from the, you know, the punk punk basis to the lead singer of the Irish Martins or whatever, or the keyboard player of the Spiral Carpets, everyone's got this social awareness and everyone wants... And that was the, that, I think that was the attraction for the book and why we, why we did attract so many contributors. Uh, because we're not just talking about a particular, you know, a music scene. We're not just talking about music in general because music books have been written forevermore. But it was, it was to do with that social awareness and that social political awareness. And I think that reminds us, that, you know, the, the, the breadth of contributors that you have and also the age range, you know, guys going back, you know, considerably older than we are, who've really, you know, been around the block a few times. It reminds us, from from my perspective anyway, that it's not us that's abnormal. We're not the weird ones. And when you get to talk to people, on some level, even people who get their information from the mainstream, on some level, they can agree because they don't want war. They don't want environmental destruction. They don't want social strife. What most people want is to live their lives with their family and friends in peace. Exactly. I mean, you could have took, I, I've said that, those exact words myself. If you can ask any, you know, any member of the public and if you asked them what was important to them, it'd be a little holiday now and again, a little bit of travel, to be at peace with the family, exactly as you've just said, you know, to, to love the family. They're not great expectations. And even those are being kind of taken taken away from them. So there is... There is a similarity between us all and, and, and in what we what we desire and what we require to make us happy. And as you said, we're not the misfits. We're not the weirdos. If you want to see a bunch of weirdos, you you just have to look at, at watch on TV the Houses of Parliament debates. And you, I mean, if, if you can't get it from that, then I don't know. 
you need to you need to do some soul searching or if you just watch the news or if you just watch x factor it's it's blatantly obvious to me who the who the where the freak show lies um and you know if you look into the eyes of a lot of these people there's a lot of clues there too as far as i'm concerned so yeah you know, albeit we, we we are doing what we do, we're by far the misfits of the society, and I, I like that what you said. Well, the, that thing point you just made about the eyes is very significant, and I've said this time and time again, and it's where, when I first began to realise as a young child, looking at mainly it was people on television, and initially I thought that their eyes looked strange because they were on television. I thought perhaps I met them in person, it would be different. <laughs> then later in life, when I met people who are politicians and again this does seem to be a bit of a mantra with me but I'm not including everyone in this in this category you know but I'd meet people politicians or other people in positions of power and there's something about their eyes whether it's from Tony Blair to George Bush you know the idiot boy Bush through to the Queen I mean am I the only person or clearly I'm not but I sometimes ask myself am I the only person who finds Queen Elizabeth II the Queen of England chilling Frightening, frightening mm. to look at, and I've, I've, I've got I've got a picture of with, with the Pope, and the two of them together are, are, are worse than any horror movie I've ever seen. And yeah, that's the challenge, you know. Just if if you just ask people to look look into the eyes that there is, well, I suppose you are looking into the eyes of a sociopath and a psychopath, and they have they have very different eyes than somebody that emanates love and and kindness. They, they are very different, and it's a good test. It doesn't all. You know, I can't say on every account that it's going to be right. Some people might just, you know, fall into that category by. I, su- I suppose if you was error, a, you know. I suppose if you was a conspiracy theorist, though, you might suggest that these people, this, the establishment and the elite, are, are, are taking some kind of a, a potion. You know, why they always seem to live to past a hundred? Are they are they taking some kind of elixir? Well, I think we can live to past a hundred, can't we? Can't we? You know, naturally, but but we're the ones that are conditioned into, into programming our cells. Half of the royal, they should be dead already. <laughs> but they're not, they're not eating food, are they, with you know, MSG and aspartame? And they're not drinking fluoridated water. They're, they're, not, they're not kind of having to deal with all the stuff that is being forced upon us. You know? So I don't know whether they are taking an elixir of life, but just the absence of what we have to endure would... Maybe, would maybe eating a swan. Yeah, well, <laughs> you've got, you know, to, to be honest, whether they avail themselves of it or not, because we can think of people in elite positions who have um, substance abuse problems or something like Robert Maxwell, for example, if you remember him, who was massively overweight and very unhealthy. But some of them clearly have access to the best of everything, best being in quotes. But, you know, if you've got health care, all you need, the, the absolute best people, you know, the cleanest food, the cleanest water, constantly comfortable environment, never having any physical stresses and strains, that's got to make a difference because we can see people if I can put it on the outside, you know, who live amongst us, who live really well, and sometimes they can reap the rewards, you know. Oh, definitely, you know. I can only imagine Robert Maxwell sorted himself out now, you know, since he, oh, uh, you know, since he fell off that boat and uh, <laughs> mysteriously, <laughs> mysteriously, mysteriously disappeared yeah, yeah, onto yeah. the island with all the rest of them. Well, he was a he was a key figure, wasn't he, uh, Maxwell, and um, with Thatcher, you know, I think, be, be, be too, well. You know, and Eddie Shah. I don't know if you if you remember him, but they they had definitely they they broke the print unions and um, after the mining unions, they 
you know they were very very prolific in in that period but no no it's it's true they they just don't have to suffer suffer the things that that we suffer and also we we suffer conditioning you see the higher up you go these 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 politicians and um and such they have a lot of knowledge there's no doubt it's misused but they have a lot of knowledge and they're not subject to the conditioning that that we are you know they prob- they probably know that the human cells don't have to die off at 70 and 80 that they can go beyond well beyond 100 years but because of our conditioning well we tell ourselves that you know well we're good for 70 years and you know if if, if we get there then that, that's probably it we're totally conditioning our bodies you know virtually to their own death i believe personally i i think belief systems and thought forms are very real and, and, and i do think they can change things you know on an atomic level and, and certainly cells can respond to information if you're a worrier your cells can form an ulcer, you know, it can form cancer. So the, all these things are, are kind of important. And yeah, Pete, you're right. They, you know, not many of them go at 70 and 80. What you just said about physical health is really true because beyond trauma, which is, for example, having your arm or leg cut off, you know, there's not much you can do about that. It's kind of gone. Or toxicity, which is poisoning, you know, maybe radioactive poisoning or drinking arsenic or something. Beyond that, the most important thing that affects your reality and the part of that being your physical condition is what you believe what you think absolutely it's 90 for me personally it's 90 95 percent of it because uh, you know i i know that the, the the cell responds to thought forms and belief systems like i said before and i know the cell um, re- can be regenerating itself and renewing itself up to 120 years you know uh, it could go even beyond that it's 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 that it's that powerful and the thought form and the belief system is massive, and it will override m- many, many of the of the things that we have to endure. But you know, we need to we need to look at that and understand that, and, and start living that and changing our belief systems a, a little bit more. Well, guys, listen, we've been talking today about your book, The Difference We Make, and a lot of things related to it. And there's so much food for thought in there that we could go on all day. But perhaps as we wind things up for this session, you could share with listeners information about the book, where they can get it. I know you've got a website specially for the book, and I don't know if you've got any more promotional events, but you certainly did a quite a sequence of you know events to promote the book and you know signings and what have you. So just anything else you'd like to share? Well, I'll just say the book's available, like you say, uh, from our own website. There's some there's some good, interesting stuff on there as well, and you know the website's growing at the moment, and that's the difference we make. It's also available on eBay at the moment, and there are a few independent stockists, um, but you know they're ju- they're just in the odd cities, really. So I think I think the best way to purchase the book, and probably the cheapest way, would it be Pete, is uh, the difference we make. dot uh, Yeah, that's the official web- the, the address for the uh, official website is www.dot.the.difference.we.make.or.one.word.co.uk. Uh, it is available on eBay. Just type in the difference we make. And we do, as Grouse just said, we do have a couple of stockists, uh, of friends that have the, uh, have their own businesses. We have one in Brighton on Madeira Drive at the Modern World Gallery owned by our friend Neil Sykes and at the Skin Graffiti Tattoo Studio in Bury, uh, Lancashire, which is owned by my good friend Jimmy. Because this is a self-published book, uh, we are, of course, looking for further further outlets. Uh, and so, does anybody listening that can, you know, offer any advice or, you know, may want to stock this book on our behalf, then we'd be certainly happy to talk to you. Excellent. Well, Grove, Pete, thanks, guys, so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. 
Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Greg. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's legalisefreedom.com, legalise-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programmes offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. Let us love her, laying in